everybody. Welcome to the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. On this episode of the Subtext, I share a conversation with Washington Post columnist and playwright Alexandra Petri. If you're new to the podcast and want to hear more conversations with playwrights, subscribe to the Subtext, and each month a little treat will appear in your feed in the form of another episode with a brilliant playwright. And if you're a social media user, you can find the Subtext pretty much wherever you are. Connect with us and say hi. Alexander Petri is a humor columnist for the Washington Post. Her satire has also appeared in McSweeney's, The New Yorker, other newspapers, on the radio, and on TV. But the reason she is on this podcast is because she's a great playwright, and when we aren't talking about Milf Manor or Dana Milbank, we do discuss her playwriting. Alexandra's latest book, Alexandra Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents I Made Up, is available right now wherever books are sold. This conversation was recorded in March 2023 over Zoom. Yeah, no, like somehow just like shutting it out. uh, It's like when I'm like wearing a hat, I find it harder to hear also, but I think that's... (laughs) That that doesn't make sense. Uh, I like it though. I mean, that's that's interesting. Your ears are distracted by the hat. Yeah, no, I, I, my entire being is distracted distracted by the hat. Like, yeah, <laughs> put put me in a hat and sunglasses, and I'm just like, I gotta focus too hard. Um, and yeah, all my response ha- time goes way down. Are you a hat person? I tried to be. Uh, but everyone said that the hat that I picked is my like debut hat looked very silly. Actually, I have the hat if you want to see. Yeah, it. I do. Okay, I do. Um, yeah. It's <laughs> it's this hat. Oh, it's great. I was like a great hat, but yeah. I, I've been told is not a dignified hat. Uh, I mean, who needs to be dignified? I think that's a kind of that's a pretty rad spider. Yeah, no, it's the it's a it's a baseball team actually. They're called the Doc Spiders. They're like whatever one like below minor leagues is. I think I feel like if my husband can hear this in the other room, he'll be like shouting like, "No, actually, they're like a summer collegiate kind of, but not quite type something." Right. Team. So just take like a man shouting about baseball as you know. Yeah. Uh, but- I got it. I got it. I I learned. I lived in L.A. for for uh, several years, and when I first moved there. Uh, I I used to wear hats a lot more often, but you know I'd be wearing. And it's so sunny out there, obviously. So like you're you're blocking the shade. But I realized when I had the combination of a hat and sunglasses, anywhere I went, people would have to like do the extra look to be like, is that a celebrity? Yeah. Because they're clearly like covering their shit up, you know. Oh, and that's I, true. Yeah. No, because in LA, you see somebody in a hat and sunglasses, you're like, maybe that's. You know. Yeah, because they're like, why do you need both? Yeah, no, exactly. What's the deal? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. I wish I ever got Chris Pine. It was always uh, 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 Seth Rogen, always. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like you can do worse than Seth Rogen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've come to embrace it, Uh, but I would get it. I mean, this was also like, you know, eight years ago. We looked, Seth and I looked more alike we've yeah. we've since gone on our own trajectory Di- divergent yeah, yeah. journeys yeah yeah uh but anyway 
this is a uh you know we're here to talk about the playwright version of alexandra hey can you pronounce your last name for me petri petri oh it is like there's like you're never going to get it right if you just guess and i also feel like all of my internet presence just makes it harder for people to guess because i've like chosen like puns on like yeah it's like (laughs) it's just like no every single one like i'm like petrified on facebook or like petri dishes on twitter it's just like good luck good luck right yeah that's what that's why i ask i'm gonna have to say it and i like to say it right yeah but 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 so yeah so so uh you're not known at the moment uh for for writing plays and being a playwright but uh i love that that's who you are or were like and that's what we're here to talk about i'm really excited to get to to know the the playwright you because i feel like i have uh come to know a version of um the current writer you through your work with the washington post no totally um i feel like am very much am it's just like in the sense that as long as you feel like you're theoretically working on something you're you haven't stopped and i i very much like am roosting on a play right now that i'm like very excited about but it's just like the 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 crucial part where you go from like roosting to like actually getting that egg out um uh that's that's the part that i'm doing all of the writing except for the writing right (laughs) right (laughs) that's actually i mean for me as a for me as a playwright that is uh not just the most important part of my process but i actually like actively love it yeah at at my best i'm spending months and months i'm spending like nine months in this in this phase and uh like you start to see all these things around you in your life that relate to the play you're thinking about in ways that you may not have noticed those things if you weren't thinking about that. that no, exactly. Play. I feel like things sort of like when you're getting cotton candy out of a cotton candy thing and you're like moving the little uh, paper cone around and gradually more and more bits of cotton candy start clinging to the cone until you've got yourself a nice fat cone of cotton candy. Yeah. Uh, that like sort of different ideas and things start attaching to the paper cone that is your uh brain on plays and um like because it it just sort of like the themes and the things that stick out to you and and like you'll just sort of get different splotches of stuff yeah yeah. it's it's a very fun phase to be in i've been in it for like to, to the point where and it's also like the thing where you're like how much do i tell people about this because talking about it like releases some of the excitement of like you feel like, oh, I did something today with regards to it. I like told somebody about the idea instead of like, oh, like should that uh, have all been like, should I keep it all pent up in in the bottle? But no, I like in the broadest possible strokes, it's about like, uh, like parenthood and Greek mythology. uh, And the it's, yeah, it's, it's called pacify. Um, Okay. But it's got like, like, like the bull lady, not like the, the thing that you put in the baby um (laughs) yeah uh yeah i well the greeks have a long tradition in uh plays about parenthood (laughs) yeah Uh, and it all went super well right (laughs) they always end great for the kids unrelatedly have you been watching (laughs) milf manor um no oh i mean it speaking of greek plays about parenthood um 
that's that's a, a Greek that is a Greek drama about parenthood is MILF Mater on TLC. It is absolutely captivating viewing. Uh, it has fully delivered on its premise. Um, it's one of those things where it's like we're living in the exact era of like pop culture where all the 30 rock jokes are just being made into shows now. <laughs> and this is the first, but it won't be the last as like people are like, okay, I hope it's gold case next. And they're correct in that. Um, and I think like the, the best part of it is just, uh, I mean, it, it, honestly, I would say talking about it is almost as much fun as watching it because then you get to like, it, it's, it's such a fun, like, oh, no, it, it people are like it can't be exactly as described. You're like, no, it is exactly as described. I, no, I love I love that you kind of know everything about it just by the title. Like I've never seen it. I've heard the title before, and I know what reality television is. You call a reality show Milf Manor. Okay, I yeah. know what I know it all. No, they've got a manor, um, and they've got <laughs> intergenerational uh, dating. <laughs> they have a and- manor. <laughs> They they have a manner of, and uh, it's it's got it all, um, <laughs> and it's full I, I of like, milfs. Yeah, no, well, and but it's also it, it's funny because like there's some like mother son pairs who are like they're just like we they're just like oh, we feel like this is normal because this is what our relationship has always been, and so you're like maybe I'm weird for thinking that like this whole premise is a little you know unusual like maybe maybe it's on me because they seem unfazed by it but then there are other moms and sons who are like slightly phased by it and so like you get the whole like range um but no i highly compelling viewing and definitely what i should be spending my few hours when not uh working or occupied by uh my, junior my, my favorite thing is that what made you think of that was <laughs> the greeks Greek well, Greek plays because I mean, now now yeah. now I'm hoping that two thousand years from now, folks are looking back at uh, reality TV as like our Greek theater of this era. Oh man, well, I do feel like you get like heightened emotions in like fascinating ways on like reality TV. But there's also like there's like the element of like how much of it is performance, how much of it is like the producers, like you go here and like I have friends who are avid students of like the bachelor and they're like oh well this would be the producers and this would be that like you know who have like pools of like every season on the bachelor like here are the people opening night now pick one to go all the way and they they take it really seriously and they know all the signs about like and i'm just sort of watching it naively as like oh like no they're all here some of them are here for the right reasons and some of them are not here for the right reasons and we're gonna sort it all out but it, it's a fascinating sort of like mix of like oh how how sincere are you being and how much of it are you just like i want to perform feeling in love or like i want to perform wanting to date uh my son's friend or you know whatever it is that you're excited to do yeah i'm i'm starting to think it's it it might it must be kind of flattering to be invited on to milf manor like yeah. in some way well, I feel, I feel like they did an interesting thing about like the casting where they were like, we want to find like mothers and sons who like hang out and are both interested in like intergenerational dating experiences. And uh, like they, they said they really had to work on casting. There's a great article by Emily Yar in the Washington Post, not to uh, plug the Washington Post, but it's a 
it, it answered all the questions. Cause I feel like you watch, you see the headline Milf Manor and you have some specific questions after that. And it answers all of those specific questions. Like where did they find the manor full of uh, milfs and sons? And <laughs> where did they, uh, you know, like how did this concept arise? And it, it tackles all of those. So. Um, have you always been a reality TV viewer, junkie lover, whatever? I sort of, I feel like TV was a very precious commodity in my household growing up in that like I wasn't allowed to watch it on school nights. And so the nights I could watch it, I was like obsessed with it, which I think had sort of the opposite impact of what it was designed to because I'm like, eliminate. I get to watch eliminate tonight. And uh, which was, you know, one of those very straightforward, like we're gonna start the night with four people who want to date you and one you. And in the course of the night, it always concluded in a hot tub. It, or I mean, I, I don't wanna say always because I haven't seen all of it, but blanket wise, it mostly concluded in a hot tub and uh, you sort of win of the field. And so I watched a lot of Eliminate, loved Eliminate, a classic show. Um, but other than that, I'm sort of a newcomer to reality TV. There's just reams and reams of it. I, I, I was more of a like, I'm gonna slowly, you know, work my way through HBO's gritty prison drama Oz. Like that was more my, like, here's mm -hmm. my- mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, DC and um, my, my family is from the Midwest. So I had a little bit of like quality time in Indianapolis uh, and, Fond du Lac, but also uh, went to high school in DC. Yeah. So have you been, have you essentially been in DC? You yeah. know, since I, I've, I've, I've seen many, uh, many an administration. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, no, it's, I, I didn't expect that I would fall so close to my tree, but I'm, I'm one of those apples who's going to have problems later because it's, it's, you know, so close to the tree from which it fell that as it grows, it's going to bump into that tree and like, they're <laughs> going to keep, like, there's going to be some kind of foliage problem. I don't know. I didn't read the overstory, but I assume it would explain uh, how, how the trees tackle that kind of deal. I've kind of had the opposite problem where I, I've lived all over the place and I, I wish I would stop moving. I lived in DC. Like, what are your favorite places that you've uh, well, I grew up in New Hampshire, so I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for my home state. Oh, the Granite State. The Granite State, yeah. Boston's my home city, and I lived there for many years. And nice. uh, so that's really like my my favorite city. Uh, but I've lived in Boston. I lived. I went to undergrad in in Arlington, Virginia. So I was in D.C. for a few years. Have a lot of friends there, and I miss it. I love D.C. I I really do miss it. Hopefully I'll be there later this year. Oh, nice. No, it's it's a fun place. Yeah. I feel like it's it's full of like, because people are always like, oh, like Hollywood and like New York, those are places where like you move because you have a dream and you want to like bring that dream true. But people also move to DC with like dreams. And I feel like those dreams are very like entertainingly specific. I have a friend who's like, I dream of someday regulating something and he came to DC and now he's yeah. regulating things. And I'm like, yeah, I live the dream. I, <laughs> I do, you know, I lived in LA for a decade and I lived in DC for for several years. And I actually think there there is a strong equivalency to the way both of those places feel because both places, like DC is, is, is so ubiquitous in our news and all like the monuments, if you haven't visited, you have seen the White House a million times and the Capitol and all the monuments and you've heard of them all and you've seen these speeches. <laughs> and uh, 
so going there when I was there the first time as a freshman in college and I walked I walked up the steps for the Lincoln Memorial. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like awe-inspired and I couldn't believe I lived there and I could just go there whenever I felt like. And it is kind of a similar feeling like arriving in LA and then seeing the things like the Hollywood sign and seeing the things that have been shown in film and television that you grew up on. It has that same, I mean, at least for me, it pushes oh, yeah, those no. same those same buttons. No, I feel like it's funny because I, as sort of a DC person, I was like, oh, I can just go to wonderful museums for free anytime I want. And I was very like, they all were like, yeah, you like the locals are the ones who never actually go to the museums. But meanwhile, my husband is from LA. And so I'm always like, I get to LA and I'm like, this is where like Gore Vidal lived here for a time. <laughs> and like, we can drive past his house and like, look, that could be Chevy Chase. And he's just like, what? What are you talking about? Like, anyway, so he, he was very like, DC is the dream. I want to go and live there someday. Like he was one of those, like he turned on the radio and there was C-SPAN on the radio. And he was like, truly, this is God's paradise. <laughs> So like, I'm like, oh, but like, look at it. Like Buster Keaton was here. Um, mm -hmm. So we have very like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. If he, he's very good at being like, look how cool all this DC stuff is. I'm like, yeah, it is pretty cool. Um, but I have not had a similar effect on him with LA. I'm always like, it's so walkable. And like, look at, look at those palm trees. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, when I was walking in LA, every, anytime I'd walk in LA, I just like desperately missed shade because those palm those palm trees don't provide much shade on the sidewalk. Yeah, no. It's like no. blist, it's like blistering hot. So so growing up like how did you connect to to the theater or to being a writer? Well, so I actually like I always knew that I wanted to be a writer in some way. Like I just I loved to read and I would just and, and plays were one of the first things that I like both read and like wanted to write. I was super into like Shakespeare when I was little to the point that I like, I was like trying to put on like Romeo and Juliet with cats, like Romeo and Juliet. And it, it was, it was a whole thing. It was not entirely successful. Um, but so uh, I was like always wanting to write plays and arena stage did this like young playwrights thing. And I wrote this play about the unicorns who got left behind uh by the arc and they were like this will be one of the 10 plays we produced this year like in this like little 10 minute plays for kids and i was just blown away i'm like this is the coolest thing in the world like there's actors and a director and lighting and costume like the costumes were like a little hat with a horn on it but i was just like right. it's incredible i want to do this i i love this like because i do feel like it, it's just so cool when, when you get to get other people into a room who are so like who have skill sets that you don't possess and they just take the, everything that you've written on a page and they're like no this is going to be actually cool and let me tell you why and so yeah so did you come to find plays on your own did somebody put Shakespeare in front of you or did you just like wander into a library and, and I think it was book? like my mom was always like reading to me and so she was very like they had this like little like Shakespeare but for children that was on HBO I think for like a brief time and she got all these like VHS cassettes of like but what if Macbeth were just 15 minutes long and it were an animated film and like and had like little books for that and so I remember at one point like I had a babysitter who came over and was like 
So I, I brought some like videos, like we, we can watch, want to watch Jumanji. And I was like, no, I'd like to watch the Orson Welles Macbeth, please. <laughs> I could see like the light die in her eyes. And at the time I couldn't, I was just like, she doesn't seem as into this as I was expecting. Like obviously <laughs> something's wrong with her, um, but no. So I, I, I don't know, I was super into it. Um, and uh, like we'd go to see shows at the Shakespeare theater and they would, have like the history chronicle plays and I was just like oh this, like all of it was just so fun and so weird and just so elevated and uh just in terms of like the emotions and the way people were talking and all of that stuff and then I don't know I, I would also just enjoy reading plays like some plays that are like totally unstageable I was like like you know like the weird Gerda Faust where it's like but what if everyone became a witch and also I saw Helen of Troy and I was like yes or like the dog beneath the skin like the weird Auden play where it's like but what if the dog was just a guy in a dog suit anyway just like all these like I, I would just enjoy reading the chamber ones as well as like seeing stuff live so mm -hmm. just and also like I love to set reading goals and it turns out plays you can read them really fast compared to how fast you can read like a long book. Yeah. Uh, and once I discovered that, like I had a summer of 40 plays, uh, but. Well, uh, I was at one point in my life, I was, I had a theater company. I was part of a theater company in Boston and another theater wanted to do uh, Robert Schenken's The Kentucky Cycles. And uh, it's a, which if you haven't seen it, The Kentucky Cycle is, very, very, very long. And uh, so this person that I had this other theater company was like, I, I want to do this play, but it's humongous and I can't do it on my own. Like I need to partner with another theater. And I was like, ah, I'm very like, this is very interesting. Like, okay, great. And he's like, uh, I'm going to give you the play. I need you to read it, but you have to read it in one setting. And I was like, sure, because I'm thinking like you would just like, sure. Yeah, how long play. can it be? It's a play. Yeah. He handed it to me and it's the length of a novel. <laughs> And I and I I go home and of course when he hands it to me I'm like oh yeah cool no problem and I'm like inside I'm like what is this and I go home I start reading it and of course my like thirty minutes in I'm like thinking of something else I'm like ah, I can't how am I gonna finish reading this and because I couldn't finish reading it in one setting I had to go back to him and be like I'm sorry we can't do so we yeah, ended can't. up not doing it just because I couldn't read it all the way through. <laughs> But I, I think did, it's like seven hours long or something like that. It's so that's long. like a grueling endurance test. Yeah, where yeah. Like, oh man! Have, oh. You ever, have you ever seen Gats? Yeah, I was about to say like that. That sounds like one of those uh, elevator company. Specials. Yeah, elevator repair service. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like the 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 Gats experience was, was awesome. I was totally I was totally there for it. Like I took a day off of work. Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah, it was like a two. It was like a two p.m. start time for it. When, when did it end? Like midnight? Or it ended at like ten. Like it oh, was man. like I think it was like eight hours long, including like they had normal like intermission breaks that are like yeah. ten to fifteen minutes, and then they had one meal break where you could like leave the theater and go get something to eat and then come back. And I think it went eight hours. And at the end, like you're sitting, you're sitting in your seat in your exhausted right but then you're realizing that this cast was on stage for this whole time and one of the actors is like playing nick you know is really yeah. like is is speaking 90 percent of the text from that book over an eight hour period 
and you're like, I was just like on my feet. Cause I'm just like, I want to hug this guy. Like I felt like, I felt, <laughs> I, felt person... I, was, I was like proud and empathetic and like worried for him at the same time. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel like I'm always, as somebody who's like, oh, I am the person who gets to sit during this show, or at least during the shows where you get to sit. But I'm like watching actors and I'm like, like I just saw Into the Woods and I was just like, nobody got to sit down. And then I'm like, it's, I think part of that's just like, I'm tired. I want to sit down all the time. <laughs> that's a weird note to have for a production. Um, yeah. But no, like I, I like, I hear that like Jessica Chastain's now doing a doll's house where she's in a chair the whole time. And I'm like, good, she's sitting down. That's important to do. And especially at this time. Yeah. 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 I guess the, the, the Chastain doll's house, she, you walk in the theater and she's already sitting on stage yeah on a on a rotating stage nice and i guess they're encouraging i'm seeing i'm 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 learning this because they're encouraging photos before the show starts so everybody who's seeing it is taking a photo of jessica chastain sitting in a chair and you're having all of these the same photo just from different angles all over yeah. all over twitter and instagram no, I, yes, I saw somebody being like, she's entering her like when you're on the microwave dish rotating yeah. around era. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's an era. I like that. Um, yeah, I think she's done. I mean, can we check her doneness? Or maybe she doesn't need to be microwaved anymore. And maybe the, at the end of the play, it goes, there you hear a little ding. Um, <laughs> like, I'm leaving the house. I won't be your doll anymore. Or whatever her final step. Right, like, yeah. I'm out of that doll's house. Ding. I don't know. Yeah. I do I do like plays where you're like, I think this is how the play goes, but yeah, no. Oh, uh, one of my favorite family guy bits is when Peter Griffin is watching a movie and they say the name of the movie while he's watching the movie and he's like, That's the, they said it. They said it. <laughs> I kind of want a doll's house now to end with somebody saying and that's a doll's house. <laughs> yeah, I think she does say it though. I feel like Ibsen likes to like actually, I don't know. I, I, I was like, I just read Pierre Gint and they said his name all the time. I'm like, yeah, no, it's a name. That's not, you don't get credit for having the name of a character in the play. Right. Um, but. Uh, so as you were, so I want to go back to your, oh, yeah, no. to your, your like early, early years as writing. So you wrote this, you wrote this short for arena stage and, and they did it and you got to see the unicorn hats and all that yes. stuff from where you like at the time were you thinking oh cool like this is the thing this is the thing i want to keep doing yeah i'm like i want to do this forever and so then i went to i went to college and i wrote uh co-wrote co uh co three shows uh three musicals actually uh two for the hasty pudding theatricals um and uh which was just like very goofy very full of puns uh all in drag uh, and then I kept doing it after graduation. I wrote a couple of shows for uh, Fringe, and then I uh, joined the second generation of the Welders, a playwrights collective in DC, and I, where we each uh, would produce the shows by the other playwrights, and then get they, you know, you you go sort of round robin around, and so I had a show through that, and which was super fun, but also was super fun watching other people who had like amazing brains and very different processes get to like do their shows so like it was neat having a front row seat um and uh but not just sitting also standing and uh helping hang drops and so forth i've been such a fan and admirer of the welders uh since its inception like i've been um i i know uh Gwydion a little bit 
and interviewed him for this a couple of years ago. Um, and I think another uh, Renee Calarco, who was oh, yeah. part, part of the, the OG crowd. Um, and it was awesome. So watching that come together originally and then watching, because you know how people have big ideas and the bigger the idea, whether regardless of how great it is, you still, it's still really hard to keep a thing going and to watch them launch this thing, have it go through a whole cycle successfully and then hand it off to another generation. And it continues on successfully. And now what? It's on like a third? 3.0, yeah. yeah. No, which that's like the, the best part was getting to pa pass it on. And like, that's right there in the name. And they're amazing. And uh, you they're gonna be passing it on next. And that's, it, it's just, it's so cool to keep, uh, and, and yeah, no, check out CC Reed's Rock, Paper, Scissors upcoming next month. <laughs> when does it open? Is it right in front of you? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, but very soon. Oh, yeah. June 22nd through 25th. Uh, and you can purchase tickets on the Atlas website starting February 13th. Awesome. So There's the plug. Uh, yeah, it's not often that we we uh, we plug somebody else's play on here. No, Welders so, Forever. Yeah, Welders Forever. Yeah, anyway, my point is I'm just like, it's like so inspiring to watch that happen. And it makes me want to, when I stop moving <laughs> from city to city, it makes me want to uh, uh, start something that that can that can live on beyond me. I mean, I feel like there are so many ways to like, like well i'm not sure what i, I started saying i'm like there's so many ways to start things that can live on beyond you i'm like yes what a what a straightforward sentence. <laughs> but no it's, it's like that quote about like planting a tree and having a child teaching a man to fish teaching a tree to fish having a man uh fish with your child uh just all of those things combined into right one. right That's, the give the giving tree and the and fishing for a lifetime or whatever it is right no but i guess i i feel like everybody wants to like start something and i feel like the cool thing is to be like has somebody else started a thing and that i can make it help keep it going because i feel like that was yeah. um yeah it might be better it might be better <laughs> to bring the energy to keep a thing going rather than to expend the energy on the risk of starting something that might not <laughs> no, I'm just think of the physics of it, because like the momentum yeah. and so forth. Yeah, I don't know. I was an English major, uh, but I assume that the friction and such. Uh, but yeah, yes. So, so uh, you, how do you describe the writer that you are now, or the writing that you're known for creating today? I guess I would say I'm a columnist pr primarily, but uh, I like to think of myself, I'll, sometimes people will say that I'm a humorist or a satirist and I, I happily answer to either of those. Um, I always feel like it's it's one of those things where if somebody else refers to you that way, you're like, yes, thank you. But yeah. you can't be like, hello world, I'm, I'm a, a I'm a humorist. <laughs> I don't know, there's something, I always feel presumptuous being like, no, you're gonna, laugh or you're gonna think i hope that people will do both of those things when they read something that i have written but i uh i'm definitely a writer 
Um, yeah, you sure are a writer, and I'll I'll say you're funny <laughs> because I I find you I find you hilarious, and and I'm and I know it's like weird to talk to like because saying something's funny or saying somebody is funny is is a compliment, and to pay that compliment to yourself is is weird, but uh, you you write. I'm assuming with intention, right? To to make people yeah. laugh, chuckle, right? Something on that sort of spectrum of of response. Yeah, no, I feel like you can say like I, I'm writing a joke, and I'm the point of that joke is I will try to make someone laugh. But when you're like, as as opposed to like I'm writing funny, I don't know. There's like something about like oh, I'm making something and constructing a thing, and then like yeah, you know, I, I've done my best to build these words into a joke, and now they will hopefully go forth and function as a joke but maybe they won't do that maybe they will just function as a sentence um well i'm curious i'm curious to i'm curious to hear about your sort of path from from like where you started to where you are because i don't know any other playwrights i know like i know of playwrights who have become comics like lewis black famously was a playwright for for many many years and and you know was just you know became a famous stand-up comic later in life uh however i don't know like i'm curious to hear about how you got from from a to b well i feel like playwriting has been the thing that i could never sort of stop doing and so even when i'm like oh i am interning at the post oh they offered me a job oh i guess i'm a columnist now i was always like still writing plays and still having that part of my brain going and so i think that's informed a lot of just the way i write and i, I loved like i just love i love writing dialogue uh and like getting to try to use like have two voices talking rather than just one voice i feel like you can like get different sort of angles of argument out by having things be call and response uh than you can when you're just having one person sort of present it. Um, but it's also in terms of thinking of like, sometimes when you're trying to write a satirical piece and you're trying to exaggerate the voice in some way, it's it's like writing like a character monologue. And so I feel like even though I've been doing the job of a columnist, I've often been using the tools of a playwright to do that. And so that's been like a, a kind of, even when I'm not writing plays, I I am still secretly working on. I'm not letting that muscle atrophy. I hope. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I, I forget where that sentence was going. So but. so so when you were writing, when you were sort of developing your your writing uh, in college, uh, and by the way, I just love. I love. I have. Uh, uh, friends and acquaintances who went to college in Cambridge and don't say where or like allude to where they went like there's this funny sort of like uh a Harvard thing yeah that I've just noticed like I lived in Boston so I have oh yes I, yes I, and and uh and I've, town, not not unfar from Harvard right um, but but I hear like I've interviewed some folks who who attended Harvard and and it's like it's like people who went there don't want to say the H word, and and uh, and I don't I I picked that up with you. You I only know because you said hasty pudding, and I know what hasty pudding is, and I know I know who does it. Uh. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I've blown my cover. Uh, yeah, no, I feel like 
part of the problem is that making like trying to be like oh like saying it if you make a production of it it's already like no matter what you've done it's it's worse oh and there so, they go again with their yeah like either so i usually just try to like say it so i, I feel awkward that i didn't just outright be like yes harvard but yes harvard um but while you were anyway I, i'm saying all that i don't mean to call you out <laughs> uh, <laughs> call me out i deserve it um, I, didn't, I didn't mean it as a call out. I meant it more as an observation. Uh, but anyway, my point is, I was going to say, uh, while you're while you're attending school, there were were you like writing sort of like humor columns? I, or... I was, yeah. I also uh, wrote a humor column uh, for the Crimson, a newspaper they have at Harvard. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know now. I, I, I just, I'm overthinking it. It's like when you hear your own voice in a recording, and you're just uh, like, it's yeah. awful. I hate all of this. This, this is, is my bad. fault. I apologize. Um, but no, I, I did do that, and I, uh, which it, it was a lot of fun because I got. I was also like trying to get onto the Lampoon, this like you know their their humor magazine, and they were they did not let me on, but uh, the they would like come to your room if you like didn't get on to be like we supported you but ultimately we were overruled and one of the people who did that was like but i did like you can write funny your columns were funny so it's just that the things that you sent to us were not very good and i was like i will cling to this spar for the rest of my life um so it was nice to know that even if the things that i had sent them were not very good uh they did think that i could theoretically do the jokes yeah. I can make words happen, um, <laughs> as you can see now from how well I'm doing. <laughs> so, so uh, do you go to do you go to DC and intern for the Post right after school? I did, and so that I just sort of barnacled on and uh, have been there ever since. And yeah, no. What were you? What was? Did you have like when you were coming out of school? And, and starting this internship, did, were you thinking of a trajectory for yourself? Or were you like, I want to go, I just want to go back to DC? Like, what were, what, what was it you were thinking? Well, it's funny because I found my old like diary from that time period, which is obviously extremely cringe, as I think the kids are now saying. Um, but I, it had this point where I'm like, I, all I knew was I definitely wanted to be a writer. And at one point I'm like, columnist, perhaps? And I was like, oh, hey. No, but a lot of the stuff that I love to read the most was like columns. Like growing up, I'd always loved like James Thurber. Like I really, I found Robert Benchley and I'm like obsessed with him. And like he was, Thurber was always like everything that I did that was funny, like Robert Benchley did funnier and better like a couple of years ago. And he's kind of not wrong about that. Um, but so like a lot of the stuff like Dave Barry, I was just like re reading uh, these this format. And so it was one of the things I'm like, that that is a, a cool thing to get to do for a living if that's even possible, which given like at, at the time, the state of journalism and the continuing state of journalism, it's like, you know, if anyone's foolish enough to offer me a job in journalism, I will seize that and cling to it. And uh, that's, what wound up happening and and initially it wasn't quite like oh you're just gonna write a humor column it was more like you will occasionally get to do that but you will also like help uh dana milbank blog and that sort of uh thing like you will come up with lists of like funny topics and so forth but then eventually uh they're like no people are reading you just do your thing 
and I was able to just do my thing for a while. And that, which was, I, I, I feel like I've just been, you, you can't plan to be tremendously lucky. And I have been tremendously lucky. So I didn't have like a, it was like one of those like underpants gnomes things where it's like step one, like underpants, step two, question mark, step three, <laughs> and step two, like the, the step where like I somehow get a, a, an actual career was very much a question mark squiggle thing. I yeah. had this like loose plan that like, maybe I will go study Renaissance poetry at Oxford, but then the post was like, or you could keep being here. And I was like, I'll, I'll do that first. Um, what were they having you do when you just first started out as an intern? Like, what well, was so, the what's the grunt work of an intern at the Post? Well, so the uh, on the opinion side, which is where I was, they have like an editorial intern, and so you actually contribute editorials. You get to go to the meetings and be like, like you. I wound up doing a fair amount of like local stuff and a little uh, where you'd be like, there's a stop sign here, and it should be there, or you know it's it's safer if we have a stop sign here and the paper should say so so like it was a lot of fun because you'd get to call people and be like hello i'm from the washington post please tell me everything you know about stoplights and they would and you'd be like great i now know about stoplights and then you'd get to go and tell everyone what you'd learned and then you could uh have the official voice of the paper saying a thing and so that was a lot of work in terms of just like they ran a ton of editorials and so you needed to always be writing uh, but every so often I would get the chance to also slip something in that was in my own voice and uh that yeah that, that that pretty much ate the whole summer was it was it like like a like a room like a writer's room where you're pitching yeah yeah it was oh, wow. like um so which was funnier when like I got into more of just sort of doing like a humor column because like you go around and people would be like I'm like writing a very important piece about you know the here, here's what we know going on uh in Canada this week it's like super dire and we're dealing with it and I'd be like and I'm writing a series of jokes about foaming hand soap um and they'd be like why are you in this meeting <laughs> but uh so so uh so at the end of the summer, they just didn't, they invited you to stay to stay on. Uh, yeah, no. The, the The first summer, I was I went back to college, and then the, the second summer, they just allowed me to cling on, and I clung. And that, is that when you got assigned to work with Dana Milbank? Yeah. What What did you learn about comedy working with Dana Milbank? Um. Well, I I feel like he like he's somebody who writes off of the news, like very like. He, he does all this reporting and it's like topical and quick and funny. And so like, it was like, oh, it is possible to like actually turn out a like beautifully produced column every day. And like, I, I couldn't be like, oh, I like daily. I don't, I can only do 300 words and like, it will be bad. It was like, no, look, look what Dana does and look what his audience depends on him to do. So uh, it was, it was cool being like, Oh yeah, wait. And like also like the amount of reporting that he did, I've always been like really inspired by it. Cause he'll like go and like get on the floor and get like wild quotes. And that's always uh, super, super cool. So I'll be like, oh, I, I shouldn't be just sitting in my, you know, uh, sanctum sanctorum typing in a dark room. I should be out there uh, with a notepad and a little card in my hat. <laughs> Yeah, do they, they give those to you, right? When you start out in your first oh, yeah. day, they hand them out. 
Yeah, no, you get you get your hat with your little card. You get your um, your shoe leather for your shoe leather reporting. You get all that all that good stuff. You get a potted plant, I think, in case you get into a deep throat type situation. Um, yeah, just a little flag, all, all all that stuff. Is the sound of the typewriters really distracting in the newsroom? Well, the funny thing is, I thought it was going to be louder than it was when I like got there. I was like really expecting. I'm like, oh, like. My first election night in there, I'm like, it's going to be so loud. People are going to be running around being like, sweetheart, get me a rewrite. And it was actually just like a lot of people typing and the keyboards are not that loud. And so you're just sort of sitting there and then you like walk down the hall and you get a slice of pizza and you walk back to your desk. Um, although I did share an office for a while with somebody who was like doing classic reporting and just being like, you know, bleep you, put it on the record all the time. Like, that was great. I'm like, okay, yes. Journalism uh, guys. Um, but the the style of your writing is not uh, going out to the world and getting quotes, right? Like like the your writing is essentially fully coming from your own brain, is it not? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I will go out and like do some like on the ground reporting, and I feel like that will actually be helpful in terms of being like, oh, here's what the thing should be. Like, here's what this is. I now better understand what this thing is, having like gone and immersed myself in it, and now I can write a better thing about it but yeah often the thing like would look fun functionally indistinguishable from what i would write if i were like you know just a, a brain in a jar in a closet as opposed mm -hmm. to like a uh, brain with a human meat body and arms and things going out and able to talk to people uh, <laughs> but i think it's it, like yeah it also depends on the thing because like sometimes you're like is what i should be doing here just like getting a quote from a guy or is what i should be doing here like trying to like twist this around in some way so it like i don't know sometimes you just like you need the quote from the guy that you then don't use in order to understand what the thing is so it's okay. kind of so what what is the uh like what's the sort of like functional workplace structure for what you do like do you have uh an editor or somebody like who is your like the first person that reads your work yeah, no, I have an editor. Uh, he's great. And I'll be like, hey, here's what I'm thinking of writing. And he'll be like, that sounds good. Or like, what? And then I'll be like, here, uh, I'll, here's more if he said what. Um, and then sometimes I have to write a whole piece. And then I'll be like, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Actually, what I should have written was something different. Hang on, please. And I'll go and like write it again. And, you know, it's, it's very that E.M. Forster quote, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Sometimes you have to like, have written out the whole version of something and be like, oh crap, no, actually it needed to be something different. So mm -hmm. um, then he's a very good editor who, who like I sort of has a similar sense of humor and can be like, you had a joke here, but what if we in fact increase that joke? And it's like, oh, this is great. So um, then it'll, he'll edit it and then it'll go down to the copy desk and then it'll get like, you know, graphics and things and then it will go forth. Um, but hopefully relatively quickly because often it's off the news. Um, and so like, like writing a book was very different. I'm like, oh, a different editor, a different person will be editing me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm also kind of curious for like my regular post editor to read this book that's coming out and be like, would you have allowed this joke? <laughs> Not just in terms of like, these are like, just in terms of like, he has a specific sort of taste in jokes and he'll be like, you can do better than that. But I'm like, no, but it's a silly joke and I like it. Like I had this whole joke about King Worm at one point where there was like this piece like set in a diner 
like one of those diners where people are always like, I'm, I'm going to be the reporter who goes to a diner and finally understands America. And like, <laughs> the, the conceit of the piece was like, everyone was trapped in the diner for hours and hours. And there's this whole like interlude where they, like King Worm. And I was just like, we got to keep King Worm. And he was like, do we, do we need King Worm? But I maintain that we do. And I feel like the book that's coming out is very like, it has strong King Worm energy in terms of I'm like, well, I like this joke, so I hope uh, that other 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 are there any any like pitches that you really loved that weren't that just didn't make it that you still like you still remember and hold on to? Um, well, I think it, it's always sort of like I'm I'm very like I'll just move on to the next one and not remember and hold on to it too much because often like it'll just be like oh I thought this was a good idea and then I tried to execute it and it turned out it didn't work and then like I'll sort of kick that tumbleweed down the sidewalk ahead of me for like a, a while until gradually that I eventually abandon it I'm not sure people kick tumbleweeds anyway whatever you whatever it is you, a can I kick a can down the sidewalk um but then it the can will tumbleweed off uh eventually <laughs> sort of abandoned like it'll be like one of those things where for a couple of weeks I'll be like and I've got a piece coming about voting systems and people will be like do you have a piece coming about voting systems and i'll be like i really think that i do then i'll keep writing what i think is the piece and then it just won't sometimes you just don't get any cotton candy on your little paper cone thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh do you have you had has it been challenging to find editors whether it be for uh your book or uh at the post who are really connecting with your your very specific sort of like sensibility? Well, I think I, I've been lucky both times that at, at least I, I felt like they were connecting with it. Um, but no, it, it is a challenge sometimes where you're like, here's a thing and I, I'm stating it like this way as, as like a joke. And they'll be like, this is not strictly true, which is good though, if you're in a newspaper, because you know you want somebody to go through and be like, let's make certain that like amidst the jokes, you're not making an incorrect uh, factual claim. Uh, but also sometimes if you're trying to do hyperbole can be a little awkward. Um, but no, I feel like I've mostly, uh, cause the good thing is when you have an editor that you really do trust, then like your job becomes a lot easier because you can like write a version that approximates what you're trying to say and be like, here's what I'm basically trying to say. Can we like cut off all the parts that don't look like an elephant and have somebody help you kill your darlings because it's easier to have so hand somebody else you know the proverbial uh you know dart dart gun and be like you you go take down some darlings instead of having yourself to do it because they're all like looking you in the eye be like why i am king worm and you're like no not king worm i can't do it so having somebody else go through and winnow is always it's, it's funny i've never i've never really been able to outright kill my darlings like i king worm my writing you know when something gets cut it is not getting killed it's being put into an orphanage and oh yeah save as you got to save as that draft yeah i'm coming back to that thing because like you were talking about earlier with king worm i there's something i don't i can't it's ineffable like i can't say what it is and why it matters or is funny or means something or it needs to exist I can't articulate it, so I'm going to hold on to it until I can really be either either yeah. either define it properly or just find a home for it. You know, it's sometimes they're like, there's that frustrating gap between like the thing that exists in your head 
the thing as it is on the page where you're like, I know that what you're seeing on the page is not the thing that exists in my head. It's like the closest thing I can, like the only way I can get what's in my head to you is by putting some words on this page and we'll hope we can get there together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, you can have like this, you can feel like it's really going to be an exciting parade in your brain. And then you'll look on the page and it's just like a sad tuba, tuba all by itself, sort of wandering around uh, without a formation. But a good editor will be like, I see the parade. Let's get to the parade. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the bad editor will be like, okay, like this is a tuba. Let's do more with this tuba. What if like, what if the tuba were, you know, mm-hmm. What if the tuba were on a skateboard? It's like, no, I'm not trying to make a tuba. I'm trying to make a parade. Like, I, I really hate this metaphor. And I'm sorry <laughs> that I've seized on it. But yeah, no, if you're trying to make a cake, you want somebody who will help you make a cake, not somebody who will like see an egg and be like, oh, I love eggs. Eggs Benedict. Let's do it. And you're like, no. Right. no. <laughs> uh, one of the other big reasons I wanted to talk to you was uh, I wanted to ask you about uh impact and what i mean is when uh just for for an example when you know when we write plays and and a play we've written gets produced we'll have a few hundred or a few thousand people at most see that and so the impact is like in the moment with that number of of folks and then it's over and it doesn't happen again unless maybe gets produced again maybe it gets published but then the impact in relationship is a little bit different between, you know, your writing and the, and the audience. So what I, what I was thinking of was, oh, when I got this podcast, you know, my impact changed. It's not a, it's a, it's a very niche podcast, so it's not going to millions, but it's, it's reaching more people than if I wrote a play a month and had, you know, people come see it. I do one of these a month and it reaches more folks. I'm wondering if you, if you, have a sense of the impact of your writing now that you're you have like this platform of a a nationally internationally recognized newspaper well, i do feel like it's one of those things where I, I feel as much like i'm just writing for the internet as like i, I mean obviously the because the weird thing when you're writing for the newspaper especially in print is you just uh, there's this P.G. Woodhouse quote about publishing a volume of poetry. It's like dropping a rose petal into the Grand Canyon and waiting for the echo. And I, I feel similarly about columns, but like online, you get much more of an echo than you do when you're like just on the printed page. We are like, actually, like there's, you know, thousands of these physical copies going out. Because I, I, I still love to read a physical print paper. I, I get the print paper in the morning and I'm like showing it to the baby and I'm like, hey, look, here's the weather forecast and look, here's a large picture of a donkey. There are three donkeys in the Oscar nominated movies. What does the donkey say? Um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I also just do the bulk of my reading on like my phone or on my computer. And so I feel like uh, when you get stuff out onto the internet, you get much more of a like, sometimes you'll see the pedal drop and nothing will happen. And other times you'll get like a real echo. And so uh, it's, you know, it, it varies from piece to piece, but it is nice to feel like there are at least some number of people who are excited to uh, every so often get to have me yell at the news with them. And so that's what I, I'm trying, I hope to keep doing uh, as long as people continue to find it uh, useful. 
Uh, when are we going to see your next play? Oh gosh, as soon as I f finish writing it. Um, but no, but seriously, I'm like, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's like at it, that stage where it's like, it's in my brain and I, th I think it's going to be really good, but I think it's going to be really good. Um, and it's like, cause I, I've wanted ever since like having a uh, junior to, I, I'm like, I've got to write something about motherhood that isn't just like, here's me doing like my little, like today I read, uh, Goodnight Gorilla 17 times and something in my brain ruptured. Uh, <laughs> and just like sort of think about it more broadly. And I've always been like one of those like Greek mythology girls. Like I was like my layers, the binding fell off. I had like all, all the, you know, you get your, uh, I, I, I ran like a website uh, where I gave Trojan War based homework help to teenagers when I was myself a teenager. Like I, this is a space that I've always wanted to be like, what's the right play? And I feel like I have the right play now and I just need to uh, get it out there. So I'm I'm very excited about it. Um, so I hope that somebody will hear this podcast and be like, finish writing that play. <laughs> I hope so. I'm telling you, I'm telling you to but finish I, writing yeah, it. And I hope, I, hope, I hope somebody from theater world, like an artistic director or somebody is just like, yes, we want that play. But actually I do have a completed musical uh, that I, I should have been like also plugging, which is like, we were like literally like doing a, we were gonna do a stage reading of it in like March of 2020, the best time to do a live theatrical um, thing. That and my Inherit the Windbag, which was my, I had a play about the Buckley-Vidal debates that was going to go up and that also did not wind up happening. And mm -hmm. the that stayed up for like six months. And oh, then, oh. <laughs> which was sort of like, it, it felt very like on the nose metaphorically. No, but the, it's a PG Woodhouse, uh, the musical is called like The Wrong American. And it's just uh, mi mistaken identities and joyous singing and butlers knowing best. Um, and it's just like the most, uh, like I, I will hold you down and force you to laugh and escape type show, uh, which like working on it was what kept me sane for a m many uh, stressful times. So that's still wandering around looking for a home. Uh, if anyone wants to uh, have a fun time with a butler. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope these things find uh, a home on stage soon. Um, in the meantime, we have your Washington Post work. We have your book that's coming out, or by the time people are hearing this, it will have just come out. Uh, it's called AP History. Yeah, AP's U.S. History. AP's, AP's U. Yeah, your AP. Yeah. It's called AP's U.S. History. Um, I'll plug it more when I record like the intro and outro. Yeah, and it's got plays in it. It's got a um, entire, just abbreviated version of the Crucible that's called like witch play written in the 1950s. That's definitely not an allegory or something like that. <laughs> right on. Uh, and yeah, and it's got an oral history of the exclamation point in Oklahoma that I think is completely accurate. And did yeah. you did you make it up? I, I did make it up, but I, I feel strongly that it's <laughs> at the heart of why the exclamation point is there, um, which, uh, you know, people, people deserve to know.
Thank you to Alexandra for chatting and telling me all about MILF Manor. Go out and get her hilarious book, Alexandra Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents I Made Up. She's on a book tour right now and may be coming to a city near you, so check out her website for those details. On to the credits. Thank you always to Rob Weiner-Kent and American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. The music from this episode is by Aaron Zim. The theme song is from International Pen Pal. This episode was produced and edited by me, K.J. Jarbo is the associate producer. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Dance Moms by Ying Ying Lee. <laughs>